0: Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Yo! And today, we're joined by a special guest, Alex DeSouza. Hey. So, welcome, Alex. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and just kind of introduce yourself?
1: Uh, Well, I'm an Elixir developer working for ContractBook. It's a company that manages... uh, the whole life cycle of a contract from drafts to to even termination uh, and signing, of course. I live in Barcelona and I worked uh, remotely with them. Also, uh, I'm starting my own project. Uh, it's called Refil Aqua and it's uh, a project. Uh, it's basically an app to find uh, uh, water around Barcelona, filter water, mainly because water here, it's uh, it tastes like. A pool. <laughs> and uh, this is a, a good way to actually reduce uh, plastic pollution in, in Barcelona. Uh, here, yeah, plastic pollution, it's, uh, it's nasty. Your app is slow, and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's
2: fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks That's scoutapm.com slash
1: devchat.
0: That's interesting. So it sounds like um, otherwise people are purchasing plastic bottles or bottled water. Is that right? And so you're, you're saying, hey, there are places around in the, the city where there is filtered water available. Uh, where you can refill maybe a glass bottle or something like that and help people find those. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah. That's, uh, Um, that's what, what we are doing. Yeah. Well
0: give us a link to that and we'll drop that in the show notes to, so people that are in Barcelona and want to check that out can, can find that resource. Cool. Awesome. Well, we wanted to invite you on to talk about something else you've been doing in the Elixir community. And that is you're, you've been talking and thinking about uh, Elixir configuration and that has been a big topic just in Elixir community in general, just that con- configuration is an issue uh, that people have had to deal with, especially as it's, Elixir's gone through multiple releases and different versions of Elixir where uh, releases were managed outside of Elixir and now they're kind of officially part of Elixir. And there's just lots of different configuration discussion. So I'd love to hear about uh, your thoughts on kind of what some of the problems were with the configuration situation and what you were trying to solve. And then you can introduce uh, your 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 library and kind of how you went about that.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, when I started uh, having troubles with the uh, configuration, um, it was when I was managing a big project. Uh, it was an Elixir umbrella that had uh, several applications and those applications needed special configuration. It was a, an automatic investment solution for Forex Market. And I mean, I, I was the only one maintaining that application, so for me, it was very easy to configure it. Uh, but my, my coworkers, when they tried to install it and run it, it was a bit hard to configure, uh, because they needed to have their own uh, secrets and, you know, just configure the, the usual way because i i was using application get env everywhere and of course for them it wasn't easy to find uh where that configuration was accessed and uh, that's why i i thought uh, that maybe yeah I, I should actually generalize this in a way that it's easier for my coworkers to to actually configure the application so one solution that I found was to have a module with all the configurations for each application. So every app, app gets uh, their own configuration module and try to, to just document what the configuration, what value was and maybe add some uh, defaults for the configuration value. And uh, while I was developing it, I, I found that... Uh, it was a common pattern. I just grabbed the configuration for the OS environment variables. Uh, if it wasn't there, I tried the configuration with application get And if it wasn't anywhere, it was the default. Or if it was required, then just an exception. And I saw, well, this pattern, it's general enough. Uh, maybe we can just write an, uh, a library and publish it and that's what I did with uh Skogsrudel or something like that. I'm I'm not uh, Swedish so I, I cannot pronounce it, but I really like uh Norse mythology and and there's an explanation for, for the name. Um for me um basically uh when I, I thought about it um this uh, skogsrå are uh, spirits from the forest and they help hunters to, to hunt basically if they give you luck then you you get your your your, your prey uh, your would be like game right so uh well i I tend to use North mythology for naming my projects. So I called the project as uh, the spirits of the forest, Skogsrå, uh, and uh, these spirits grant good luck to, to hunters in the forest. Uh, so the analogy I used was that, that programmers uh, were the hunters, our code is the actual hunt, and a good configuration brings success to our hunt. So that would be the good luck of
0: the hunter. <laughs> Love it. So it's funny, just because when I saw the name of the project, so I uh, just because of I, I lived in Norway for two years, so I do know s- some Scandinavian languages and Norwegian, and it's pronounced Skogdrol, like what you mm-hmm. said. Uh, so if you're an English speaker, you and you're looking for the spelling of it, check the show notes. But it is the English speaking sounding of it would be Skogsrå as one word, uh, which is yeah, how I, I will refer to it. Yeah, which is totally fine. <laughs> uh, But yeah, so what I thought was interesting about this approach um, is, you know, in, in the Elixir space, we've talked about how there's been recommendations about um, kind of moving away from config.exs kind of files. Like when you create a, a new mix project, they're not there by default. And, uh, and then the, there's kind of like this idea of, oh, well, move. Uh, the accessing of the value closer to where it's being used. And that never really f- set right totally with me. I wasn't really all the way comfortable with that. And it, it's really because of what you said is you end up with these system or application dot get env kind of calls or system get env kind of calls throughout the code in these different ac- parts of the application. So there's not really a central place to go. So you'd have to you know, have a separate documentation or something. Uh, So I like the idea of this module, this application config module that you were kind of demonstrating in your blog post and in the library. So maybe you could just kind of walk us through. uh, So you also put a blog post together, which I appreciate. And uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So just kind of maybe give us a little background on why, um, what you found to be, what problem it was solving to put these into a module and uh, and then you talk about in the blog post how, okay, that's better, but it's it's still not solving uh, another part of the problem. So maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of background there as to what it is we're trying to solve.
1: Uh, well, uh, I mean, part of the problem is finding the configuration value, right? Um, but the other part of it is uh, to actually use it and know that you need to use it. So uh, for me, it's very, very important uh, documentation. And uh, uh, usually uh, uh, I've seen projects where the configuration values are everywhere. And uh, one of the big problems is that sometimes just, uh, a person just wrote uh, the, the access to that configuration value, but you don't know. What is it for? Just know the name of it. And sometimes the name is not expressive enough. Sometimes you don't understand why the default is the default. So that's uh, one thing that you can do is just put it in a function inside the module that you're using and just document that function, which is good. But then you have other stuff like uh, handling defaults, handling if it's required or not. So it gets very repetitive and what i've seen is people just uh leaving erlang or elixir just fail when it cannot get the value but in the end uh, i i mean i know that the, the the thing with elixir and erlang is that you should let it crash but sometimes you don't don't want to let it crash you you want to know what's happening and and exactly uh, have some feedback uh of what's happening because maybe it doesn't fail there if it fails somewhere else and then you're looking for something and actually the problem was that the configuration value was wrong so um yeah that's uh that's why i generalize the the problem of getting the value uh checking if it's required if it has a default uh having the, the the documentation available for the programmer and also having an expressive name for a function directly from whatever you're generating with the Scox flow, so yeah it's it's something uh, for me at least in my projects. I like to use it uh, because it it's just it's easier for me to focus on what I'm doing and not that much on the configuration. I know it's going to work, and that's it, and just using whatever function uh, Row generates.
0: Yeah. so one of the things I liked about like these, um, just like if I were to build my own config module, which you show uh, an example of in your blog post, one of the things I like about it is, is solving that problem of one, of a good place to put defaults, but also that, uh, you know, when I'm pulling something in from an environment variable, it's always going to come in as a string, but maybe I want it to be an atom or an integer or, you know, interpret it as a list or something. Like maybe there's some parsing that needs to happen. Uh, So there's that that kind of uh, logic needs to happen somewhere. And if I'm ever accessing uh, the same value from multiple locations in my application, that becomes a a risk and and a problem where it's like, oh, well, the default was used differently in this location than that location or the casting wasn't done the same, you know, whatever. Uh, So I like the idea of locating it in a single place in this config module idea. And then it does become a source that can be documented. Uh, so in terms of solving that problem, there was a, a, va- uh, a library I used some years ago called Confex. And i just wondered if you are familiar with that because that's solving, it's, it is solving a different problem. And I uh, kind of want to hear your thoughts on uh, where you think uh, Skogsrow is uh, approaching it differently.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I saw it um, and uh... Actually, I I first, when I was building Skogsrow, and and this is, uh, you can see the first comment, and this is what I thought. Uh, It's uh, when I was building it, uh, I already saw something uh, that uh, Michal Muskawa, the uh, one of the maintainers of Ecto, uh, he created a library called Env, that has a similar approach to what Confex uh, does uh, when retrieving values. And I thought uh, that maybe my approach wasn't that right, but it felt right for me. So my first comment is actually reinventing the wheel again. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I started seeing some libraries that they, they were doing similar things as SkogStraw, like Confex, for example. And um, it's still, I I felt that they weren't giving me exactly what I needed in terms of, uh, uh, for example, one of the things that I, I use a lot with the scoxro is uh, that I have, uh, in a way, type safety. I use a lot of uh, uh, dialyzer to check uh, everything, basically, if the functions are returning the proper values and receiving the proper values. And one of the things that I focused in scoxro was to actually have specs for every function. And if I say that the function should return a binary, I expect that that actual function that is return, it, it, it returns a binary or if it's an integer, an integer.
2: Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber Sean Claybo actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at in .NET is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today.
1: Another th- thing I, I, I saw in other libraries, um, I, I think it was Vapor. Um, I saw something that I really liked, uh, w- which it was binding order. Um, by default, Scoxrow takes the, the value from the OS environment variables, then the configuration, Elixir configuration, and then the default, right? Uh, but one of the things that I I wanted was also having other sources of the truth, right? Uh, So you could, for example, I'm just thinking here. So uh, imagine that you have a remote Heroku configuration that you want to use in your application, and those variables should have priority over your OS environment variables or your application uh, environment variables. So you can create a module call. I don't know, Heroku binding, with uh, the behavior Sculptro binding, and load those Heroku variables into your system before Sculptro even get to the the system variables or the configuration variables. So you have uh, a lot of um, flexibility on, on where you get the the values. And that would be talking about runtime. But also uh I implemented two config providers that they it comes with uh they come with uh Scoxra, uh one JSON and one YML. I don't know if I'm going to implement another one, but at least those two they work. And basically they have the same structure as uh Elixir configuration files. And uh that's a way to yeah, load variables uh on building time, let's say, well, running, starting, starting up time, and that's uh, well, that's basically a feature that I stole <laughs> from Vapor. Um, I didn't understand much on how to use it based on the on the configuration that they had in in the page, but at least I got the concept, and I think, uh, well, I I hope I applied it correctly. Um, and the other thing was the Uh, finding a way to catching values. Uh, I saw this uh, library. It's called Mochi Web. It's for making web servers in Erlang. And they use something called uh, Mochi. I don't remember. It's like Mochi Config or something. And basically when they load configuration to Mochi Web, they compile a module. With the configuration values, so accessing that is very very fast. So for configuration values, it works perfectly because you never write them. Well, almost never you write them. You just read them. So that gets it's the fastest that you can get. And I wanted to implement that, but it seems like, it seemed like uh, I don't know over engineering something that was simple like Row. But then in Erlang 22 they released uh, permanent uh, persistent terms, and it's basically that. So uh, that that was a, a a cool way of using that because uh, I don't know I don't know if there are other uses for it. So I use it for for configuration, and so far it, it works good. It was a bit of a pain to test them because sometimes when you write those values, they take a bit to be written. So you need to wait for them to be there, to test that they are actually there. But um, yeah, it's it's something that I wanted to optimize. And I, I guess finally, uh, templating. Uh, actually, I fixed the bug this weekend. Uh, but it's, uh, it's something that lets you... Uh, Generate an environment, uh, OS environment uh, file uh, with all the, the variables that you need for the system to work, basically. And uh, that's a way to not actually read the documentation that you have in your mod- module, but you, you just get the, the file, which is nice.
3: Yeah, that's a nice interface with the ops folks so they can just see what they can tweak easily.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: So in your blog post, you mentioned runtime reloading. And I was curious if you could go into how that works a bit and how one ought to use it. I didn't, I didn't see the docs, but I also didn't read 100% everything.
1: Well, the runtime reloading is uh, it's something that I mainly use for testing. Um, but uh, basically, it ignores cache and tries to go through the whole process again. So it's uh, it's uh, very simple. It's not uh, in general when you load a variable to into Scoxro, it will go always to the cache first, and then we'll try to load it from the system, then the configuration Elixir configuration, finally the default. Uh, well, that's the if that's the binding order that you cho- chose, of course. Uh, so uh, reloading in. At runtime, it's just ignoring the cache and go through that process again. Okay. Um, I also wanted to
3: ask, just because I've been playing with console for the last two days, has, uh, are you aware of anyone that's, that's done anything with Scokes and, and console, so console could provide the, uh, the config? Uh,
1: no, no idea.
3: <laughs> okay. So that Josh, combined with...
0: A little background it, on console. It, what is it you're talking about?
3: Yeah, so, sorry. Console is a service from uh, HashiCorp, And it's just a distributed key value store that uses, I believe, Raft consensus to elect leaders and it will distribute key values and you can do service. It's really a service registry. Um, Anyway, but you can use it for a distributed key value setup and that combined with runtime reloading seemed like a, a, a fun way I could push out new config to a running instance and have it, you know, smartly restart things that need to be restarted and whatnot. Um, anyway, so it's just a, just a distributed key value store that's that's really easy to get going.
1: I, I suppose that you could do something mixing scoxro binding, like having your own bindings for a console, and then having some way to force reload uh, from the beginning for all the variables. So I think it could be possible to do it as you described it. Yeah, you can
3: You can also with console, you can watch for config changes on keys that you care about and you'll get it, it basically blocks until somebody updates that key. So presumably you could use something like that to to rewrite the cache until everybody things got updated. So one
0: of the things I always consider when I'm looking at a library is, I, I think, is this production ready? So like, uh, maybe you can answer that. Like, are you currently using this in a production system? Uh, what How comfortable are you with this? Uh, if I wanted to deploy this in my production?
1: Uh, Actually good, because I've used it... uh, I started with this this library, I think it was in 2017. And I was already using it in a production system back then. And uh, I recently uh, changed jobs. So in my previous job, we were using it also for a new product as well. it worked uh, very good. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It's just it's a pattern that it's a generalization of a pattern. So it's not uh, at the beginning. Row had a server uh, because I I stored the values in an ETS. Mm-hmm. But uh, once the permanent terms came, I just got rid of it, and now it's just a library. It's uh, it's actually pretty simple. So yeah, I'm. I think it's uh, not, produ- I wouldn't say it's production ready. It's already ready for production, you know?
0: Well, great. That, that is, uh, that checks one of my boxes that I'm always looking at. The other one is I just want to kind of understand, um, you know, the, the mindset behind any library is they're trying to solve a particular problem. And if I have that problem, then it's like, yes, this is perfect for me. And if they're trying to solve a problem that I don't have, then, you know, if I try to use that library, I'm going to be making requests or bug reports that are like, you know, this isn't even the purpose of this library, you know? So I want to make sure I'm using the right library for the right thing. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: And so like you mentioned vapor, that is another, that's uh, Chris Keithley, uh, maintains that one. We've uh, I included a, a it in the show notes to an episode of uh, elixir mix 40 when we talked with him about uh, vapor among other things. Uh, but that is trying, you know, focusing on getting runtime changing values. And in my applications, I, d- I typically don't have that, you know, where I'm uh, a deployed application is having runtime changes. Um, but that's just the types of applications I'm creating don't have that characteristic. And so you mentioned that you're using pers- persistent terms. Uh, are you using that for all of the, the values that you're getting loaded in? Or, or is it optional? I can say use it for this one, but not that one.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um... I I didn't want to force people to use uh, persistent terms though I use them because they are fast. And like you said, I, I don't usually have uh, runtime changing values, configuration values. Uh, but there's an option where you can avoid the cache. Uh, so it, it, every the, the only uh, thing is that it will try to load everything again. So that's the only thing that, uh, because you don't have a cache, you need to get the value from what it came from, right? So it will go through all the bindings, like always environment variables, then uh, application configuration, and finally default value. So, or whatever binding you have. Uh, But yeah, uh, you can set uh, the cache to false in the variable that you want. I haven't done uh, like a global configuration for all the variables. I haven't used it because for me, every configuration variable, it's very unique, let's say. Uh, For example, some values, you don't want to load them from the the application configuration just to protect the programmer to load something from there. Uh, Let's say a password, you don't want that in your source control. So basically you can avoid having that variable loading from the configuration. Uh, so that's why I haven't had this global configuration. Um, and nobody has requested that, that yet. So I, I wouldn't know if that's a thing, but at least with the cache, I, I, yeah, I try to uh, yeah, let people avoid that in some cases.
0: Yeah, and so I noticed in your documentation, uh, on your GitHub page, you talk about caching and the uh, use of persistent term. And you identify that, uh, you know, using, reading from persistent term is ex- incredibly fast. So it's a, a wonderful place to store static data, you know, data, data that you, you load and set once and you just read many times. But it is, it, is an, it is created, that feature of the OTP runtime was created for that purpose and it is very slow to write, which you identify too. Those are kinds of things where, you know, you wouldn't want to be, uh, resetting those values at runtime in any kind of frequency because it has to like kind of do this whole garbage collection, uh, sync up to, to make that change happen. So, Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a great use for persistent terms, especially like in applications that I'm designing and working on is because I'm loading configuration out of the environment, out of the config files, whatever. And I'm, it's, it stays immutable for the duration of that my application is running. If I'm changing it, I'm I'm changing the values and it restarts the application with the new values.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, cool. So one of the other things I really liked about your approach is that it creates these uh, like self-documenting, um, uh, I don't know, it's like macros where you're saying like it's an ENV doc, you know, and so maybe you could kind of explain where uh, you're, you feel that this documentation is helpful. Does it show up in Xdocs? Like what, 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 uh, as a developer, what benefit do I get from having that there? Uh, uh,
1: well, uh, one thing that I realized, I, when I am in the in IAX, I check a lot, the documentation for stuff. Uh, one of the things that I'm missing, for example, is uh, having the Erlang documentation there as well. Um, so, uh, what I wanted to have is a library that you can actually check the documentation for your uh, variable, but also has extra documentation that I add there. Um, So you know what's happening with that value. So things that I add there is if it's cached, if it's required, the default value, uh, the, the order of the bindings, and I think that's useful because that way you don't have to switch context like going from the console to your editor, uh, but you have everything there. So, env doc, uh it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, a, an attribute that you can put anything that you want there, uh, but it will always append that part of the configuration. That's basically your declaration of your configuration vi- uh, variable. So, um, in the past, it was very, very complex actually. Uh, I got rid of, of a bunch of stuff there because it got really hard to maintain. Uh, but I, I mainly did it because some of my coworkers they uh, they were using some of of the stuff that I did, and and I wanted to just reduce the friction between the library and them just understanding what was happening. So uh, yeah, that that was one of the reasons that I focused a lot in that part of the documentation.
2: One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't you know all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell-Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at
0: adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So one of the things I heard you mention there was uh, that you missed the Erlang docs. Uh, were you previously or still doing uh, Erlang uh, code writing? Is that what you do? Uh,
1: no, but uh, uh, sometimes I use uh, Erlang uh, functions. And sometimes I just want to know what's there yeah. and yeah in the end i end up in the actual documentation in the web documentation and yeah that's that's a bit annoying now i'm I'm writing a a parser uh for a uh, well it's a, a language that i'm creating i don't know if that's going to catch but uh yeah i'm doing it with uh, erlang and um uh yeah I, I always need to switch from the console to my uh, web browser to check the uh, yeah documentation mainly
0: so one of the things I was kind of curious about is as you 're going through the process of creating this library you 're you know possibly you know writing you know creating a new library, but maybe there's macros maybe there's you're digging into persistent terms or is there anything interesting that you learned about elixir in the whole process of building this
1: Well, when I started writing this um, i I was already i knew a, a bunch of about uh, macros and how Elixir worked. I worked also with Erlang in the past, so uh, I don't feel there was any surprises there. Uh, But I have learned a lot lately uh, with uh, managing an an open source project. uh, Because now I'm sure that people are using it uh, outside from me and probably my coworkers. So I need to be careful with uh, changes on the API, though I I, I tried not to do them, um, but uh, still that's a possibility. So yeah, I think it's more, uh, I've learned more things about the process of maintaining a, an open source project than an actual Elixir. Uh, so yeah, actually that's uh, that project has received several pull requests in the past months and one of the things that I did to actually improve the process was to uh put a pipeline in Travis with more constraints like now I'm using credo I'm using um well checking if it's formatted or not stuff like that so and also I added uh, a check for code coverage though I'm not a, a fan of code coverage as a metric to To say okay this code is fully tested but at least it gives me a glimpse of what maybe there's maybe this there's something that it's missing from the tests and maybe something that we can check and and improve so yeah that's that's something that uh, for me has been good because that way I can think uh, only on the code that I'm receiving and because if it passes the tests that, that that I put in the pipeline I'm confident that I only need to read it and and check if it makes sense or not
0: so having mentioned the uh, github project uh are you looking for uh, contributors are you open to pull requests like uh is there anything that you would ask of the community people uh, checking it out
1: uh yeah yeah of course i i love when people code for me so that's that's awesome <laughs> nice. uh yeah yeah uh, if there are some feature that people want uh and they want to implement it that's perfect I'm open to pull requests and I I don't have a like a, a code of conduct in the in the project or anything like that uh but I guess it's just common sense right uh, maybe I shouldn't trust common sense but uh, that's okay <laughs>
0: Yeah you never know right Yeah Okay, so one other question I did have is uh, and Josh was bringing this up, and maybe Josh, you want to kind of expand on this, but you're talking about uh, how this fits in with releases?
3: Yeah, so my question was what are the what are the primary benefits this provides over just putting things into releases.exs with the relatively new elixir releases um, and some things I've sort of become obvious is the the parsing, the types and uh, the well, the, the caching isn't really particularly relevant there, but um, uh, the things I really liked was the fact that it's self-documenting and encourages configurability by by creating the default environment variables and stuff. Did I miss anything in terms of the primary benefits it provides over Elixir release configuration with releases mm, No, I guess
1: that's 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 it. I guess.
0: And so, does it? is is the library intended to work equally well with a something that's in the system environment like a system.getenv versus something that's loaded from a releases file like an application.getenv does it can it pull from both or how does that work
1: uh yeah it, it always depends on the bindings uh, for example in, in my personal project um i'm using Elixir releases and uh, uh yeah Every value that you have in the release is an environment variable for, for Elixir, in, in a sense. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, in the end, it works the same. It's just loading values from where it knows how to load values, and, and that's it. The only benefit I, I see about using this is that for people reading the code, they know where those values are coming from. Uh, and even though you have values in your release, um, probably you have that documented somewhere that you have also values coming from there or, or something like that. But yeah, I, I, even though I, I, I created this library, I try to have the fewer, uh, configuration values in my applications. Um, uh, and if I can do it with the defaults, I'm fine. And one of the things that I try to do is that once you downloaded the project, you can run it immediately without configuring anything. Uh, And one of the things that helps a lot is having the the default values. Uh, But in terms of releases, uh, yeah, I've used, uh, now I'm using Elixir releases, and, and yeah, it's pretty much compatible with it.
0: All right. Well, thank you for coming on and talking about that. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we transition to PIX?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think we cover everything.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, so you, dear listener, if you're interested in system configuration and you'd, one of the things I liked about this solution is it does have a good way of pulling together both things that are coming from my environment variables, like in the runtime environment, versus the configuration values coming from my application uh, you know, releases, being able to pull all that together into a more unified way that is documenting and self-documented. I think that's really cool. So if you're a listener are interested in that, check out his uh, blog article and the project on GitHub. Links are in the show notes. And let's go ahead and transition to picks. Josh, how about you? Do you have one?
3: I have, I will say two picks. Uh, the first is called Diff So Fancy. And it's just just a very neat diff tool to make, uh, meant to be paired with Git primarily, but I mean, maybe not primarily, but it works well with Git uh, for just making your diffs more clear so you can see the specific hunk that changed and whatnot, uh, which is quite nice. And then the other thing, I have no idea if it's any good, but I just saw that it was open sourced and I want to play with it. It's called Defold, which is a cross-platform game engine for 2D games. And so I just wanted to share that with people in case it's interesting, but I, I get no promises. I saw that as well. And I was like, Oh, that sounds interesting too. So I'm glad you mentioned that. It's great. I'm always looking for something that I can use to, to play with my kids for making games because that's how I got interested in programming. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That I think there are many uh, developers who probably started on the game path and that's, that's how I started like back in the days of uh, basic. I was like, I wanted to create a game of this kind and, And I just quickly started to realize that I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't know how to model data. And, uh, then I started like, just totally got off in the weeds and like, Hey, let's see if I can make a command line app. Oh, okay. And I just totally never actually made my game. So,
3: yeah, I think, I think the first thing I did was probably modify the bananas and gorillas.basic to, to be a lighter and then also to explode much more violently.
0: (laughs) Yes, it was nice. Open source in the old day. All right. Well, I've got a couple. Um, one is, um, it was released by GitLab. They released a uh, free PDF titled The Remote Playbook. So GitLab, the company, they're a competitor to GitHub. And they, uh, they are a remote-first company. So every, everyone in the company, as far as I understand it, is pretty much remote. And so when the whole uh, world dis- discovered that, hey, we need to figure out how to work remotely, they said, hey, we're going to put together some of the things that work for us and share those. And so that is an interesting... Uh, resource. Uh, it, if nothing else, it's just interesting to look at and think about: Is there anything in here that uh, I could learn from and be apply? Maybe I'm already doing. Maybe you already have good practices, but some other ideas. Another one is the idea of buying a new mattress for your bed. Uh, so, I uh, we we realized that our mattress had was quite old, well beyond the the normal replace date, and we were, my wife and I were both experiencing, like we'd kind of wake up in the morning with stiff backs. We're like, we probably just need to replace our mattress. So we did that. And uh, we bought one, uh, cocoon by Sealy. I'm not necessarily recommending that over some other brand. Uh, but maybe just the idea that if you have a mattress that's over 10 years old and you're waking up with back pain, Hey, maybe consider just getting a new mattress. <laughs> and I, th- th- this one uh, was nice because it was, you know, compressed foam and delivered to my house. And I just, you know, open it up and it inflates and it's been great. And, you know, within like three days we were waking up with no pain. So yay for realizing that we have physical bodies.
3: The idea of a mattress (laughs) ad on a podcast is certainly (laughs) novel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And no, I'm not getting paid for that. So,
0: and you can pick any brand that you like. I know there's a number of them. All right. Alex, how about you?
1: There's a project I uh, uh that basically was the core of that uh um trading platform that I developed uh yeah a few years ago. Uh and, and it's called Igderasil also, a uh, Nordic Norse name there. Uh and it, and basically it's a generalization over uh, Phoenix PubSub. Sub. Uh, But that lets you have uh, um, adapters for uh, RabbitMQ, uh, Postgres, and Redis at the moment. I have some more, but I'm not maintaining them. For example, there was one that I created when there was this uh, cryptocurrency craze back in 2017, I think it was, uh, that basically could, I don't know if it can now, um uh, subscribe to ethereum blocks which was nice uh, to get uh, the the events in in your code there um uh and other thing i uh, i don't know it, it needs to be two or it's okay with one that's
0: great <laughs> so maybe you could just drop a link in the show notes ah, uh, so people sure. can find that project and check that out if they're interested. And uh, so Alex, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure talking with you. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that?
1: Uh, well, in, in general, I'm, I, I always read Twitter and my Twitter would be the broken underscore link. That would be my handle. And also, also my email would be Alex at the dot link. As well. And I think those two are good.
0: All right. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Elixir Mix. Woohoo! Bandwidth for this segment
2: is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.